Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Little Italy, Little India, Koreatown, Greektown, Little Jamaica. The list goes on and on. Almost every major city in North America has enclaves like this. Cities within cities. Places that newly arrived immigrants would flock to to feel a sense of home, to feel safe. Sometimes the boundaries are imperceptible. You can't tell when you cross from one neighborhood into the next. But sometimes... It is so evident. And I would have to say, you always know when you're in Chinatown. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. What comes to mind when you think of Chinatown? The food. There's so much good food in Chinatown. The Peking ducks in the window that always catches my eye. I think about dumplings. Dim sum. I think of marketplaces. Cheap groceries. Uh, Everybody talking Chinese and a lot of Chinese people. Depending on the community that surrounds it, you can have uh, more Korean influence, you can have more Japanese influence. I'm Chinese. And like I spent a lot of time around here as a kid, but just seeing like where sort of like Chinese Canadians sort of started before moving out to the suburbs is like kind of nice to feel, like even if I don't fully get the history. Hey, Leah. Hey, Fallon. So today I wanted to take you to a very special place, Canada's oldest Chinatown. Yes, Vancouver, where everything costs eight hundred dollars, but it's so beautiful. Yeah, well, it's actually not. In Vancouver, it's in Victoria. Oh, damn. Yeah, on Vancouver Island. I feel ashamed. I don't know why, but okay, it's a good way to start the episode. With Victoria, shame. I also, with shame. I love Victoria. It's like a beautiful retirement village for woke, older folks, and they have a lot of electric cars and fudge. I love it. Watch out for the electric cars, though, because they will mow you down. You can't hear them. So Victoria actually has the second oldest Chinatown in all of North America. And I mean, I did kind of get varying reports on this. In what way? Well, San Francisco is largely regarded as the oldest in North America. But in 1906, they had the giant earthquake Mm. that leveled much of the city, including Chinatown, which had to be rebuilt. Because Victoria has some of its original structures, some say... Victoria's Chinatown is okay, older. Okay, right. So they're two competing cities for the oldest Chinatown title. But I mean, probably somewhere in China would get that title, I'm assuming. But in North America, <laughs> yes, in North America. we're going to say Victoria. Yes. So what's interesting about this earthquake, though, uh, in San Francisco is that although it, it did destroy a lot of the city and it was very devastating, one of the buildings that it, that it leveled was City Hall, which mm. is where all of the immigration records were kept. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Chinese people could claim citizenship after this earthquake because the records were gone. That's amazing. Whoever mowed that (laughs) building down, like, you know, some Chinese person was just like, push it down while the earthquakes happen. So wait, are you saying that they could get citizenship easier because of the earthquake? Yeah, because there were no records for the city. That's great. Very interesting. So many people did become U.S. citizens then. Wonderful. Yeah. 
So I have always been curious about how Chinatowns start and, you know, why they exist. And so to figure out why they exist and where they come from, we need to look at the migration of the Chinese to Canada. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to look at how Chinese people got here and how Victoria became the oldest Chinatown. I'm ready. So the first, and I'm going to call them whispers, of Chinese people being on Canadian soil goes back all the way to 500 AD. Wow, that's almost a thousand years ago. So this may have been some of the first non-Indigenous people to arrive on the West Coast. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So there uh, there are accounts of a Buddhist monk named Hu Shen who came over to the Americas around 500 AD on a junk ship, a Chinese sailing vessel, with a small group of other monks. Hmm. So the Haida Gwaii on uh, the BC coast, they have some oral history about trading plant knowledge and hanging out with these monks who stayed on the island for about a year before traveling south. Oh, man. Can you imagine if Canada was actually founded by monks? What a different place it would be. What a, what a different national anthem. I mean, it would it would be <laughs> O Canada, but just the O. I mean. <laughs> yeah. So all that aside, the accounts of these monks coming over, it, they're kind of difficult to prove. Well, it's still really interesting to think of people being here prior to white colonizing powers. Absolutely. Now, the first time we do get this hard proof of the Chinese coming to Canada again before Canada was Canada right. is in 1788. And that was with Captain John Mears, a British trader who recruited 50 Chinese workers to come with him on a voyage to the Pacific Northwest. Mears was a bit of a bad boy in the sense that he wasn't supposed to be trading in the area because Ooh. he hadn't paid for his permits. And Dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Did you want like that Tiger Beat poster on your wall? Captain Tiger John Beat. Mears. Tiger Beat was a magazine from 100 years ago that young <laughs> girls used to read. It was kind of like Instagram. It's basically it was yeah. like Instagram. So there's this funny story. Well, I think it's funny. So on one of his previous voyages, John Mears got stuck in the ice mm -hmm. and uh, 23 of his men died. That's, that's not, not funny. that's not the funny part. No. And the remaining 10 men were rescued by Captain George Dixon, a fellow British trader. Oh, great. Yeah. Dixon sold Mears the supplies to keep him and his men alive. And Mears promised never to trade without the proper paperwork again. Fair. Yeah. So then Mears returns to China and sues Dixon. Wait, what for? Saving his life? For overcharging him for supplies. Oh, my gosh. That saved his life. That saved his life. That is cold. The moral of the story here is just don't save lives, you know? I know. Walk away. You see some men starving on a boat in the <laughs> middle of the ocean. Just. I know. I just love these in instances of, of, you know. White on white crime. <laughs> white on white crime. <laughs> Okay, so back in China, mm -hmm. Mears recruits 50 Chinese men to come with him and travel across the Pacific. They sailed from China on January 1788 and arrived at Nootka Sound on Vancouver Island in May of the same year. Ooh, five months on a boat. I cannot imagine. That's a lot. And with all dudes? No. No, no, I can barely handle like a five-hour flight. Mm -hmm. So once he's on Vancouver Island, Mears traded furs for goods and eventually made claims that a chief from the Nutalith Nation, whose land he was on, gave him some property, some land. And this ownership would be a factor that would lead to the Nootka crisis, where war almost broke out between Spain and Britain. I mean... That chief didn't give him any land. I know. Let's be real. <laughs> I have no proof. I haven't read the history. I didn't read the books. I don't know what really happened, but that didn't happen. No, that didn't happen. Um, I, I didn't actually also know that the Spanish were in the area. When I think of, you know, the land that we now call Canada, I always think it being 
colonized by English people, not yeah, Spanish English people. and French. Yeah, yeah. no, but the Spanish were in you know California and right. sort of in the that states, so it, they yeah. were on that coast. So it makes sense that they would you know, think that they had some claim to this area. Gotcha. And it all goes back to the Spanish crown when Christopher Columbus claiming the land for themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had the quote-unquote rights of discovery so they considered the land theirs and the British setting up camp and trading and saying that they owned parts of the island, this was not acceptable to the Spanish. So in 1789 the Spanish rolled up to Vancouver Island and told the British to take a hike and this resulted in years of discussion over who had the right to be there. Right. And so what were the Chinese people doing at this time in this area? Yeah, well, it's hard to know. But many people think that some ran, some were captured, and some were killed. Right. I'd like to imagine that they ran, and that's how the first Chinese settlements happened. Yeah. And I mean, you could very well be right, but it is difficult to know. Of course. What we do know is that the next time we have a substantial number of Chinese people beginning to settle was in the 1850s. So why were they coming here? Well, some of this has to do with the tumultuous conditions that were happening in China at the time. Many Chinese people who came over were from the southern port of Guangzhou. Between 1780 and 1850, the population in that region leapt from 16 million to 28 million. Wow. The strain on the economy, rent prices for land skyrocketed, and people couldn't plant enough crops to feed themselves and their families. Also, there was weather events like like floods and droughts that really exacerbated the situation. Right. So all of these things, I mean, it makes sense that you... You're going to try and find a better life somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And this wasn't even the half of it. There was lots of conflict as well going on at the time. Uh, And a lot of them were trade-based. Great Britain was super into Chinese goods in the 1800s, including things like porcelain and silk and tea. Okay, so one of my friends told me one time, because I said, oh, I love, you know, a, a cup of British tea. And she said, there is no British tea. There's only Chinese tea and Indian tea. Tea doesn't grow in England. And I think that's a really important thing to think about because all of this trade meant not only colonization was happening, but the the ownership of commodities, the ownership of commodities and the and the taking over of different cultural things that, you know, we now think of very British things. Yeah, I know. But the, the thing is, like, the British didn't really have anything that the Chinese were Wanted. super into. They, <laughs> yeah, were, right. they were like, please send us some Marmite. Um, <laughs> I guess Elton John's records would have been kind of way before this. Yeah. So And, you know, before the British babies were being commodified. Okay, anyway. All right. So what we had here was that, you know, there was a trade issue between China and Britain. Britain mm-hmm. really wanted to address this. And so what they decided to do was grow some poppies in India. So how did that help? So opium comes from poppies. Ah, right. So the thinking was, if the East India Company could get people in China addicted to opium, then that would help open the trade doors to China. So we've got the opium that you're now addicted to. Give us the tea. Wow. Yeah. And the thing is, like, opium was illegal in China at the time. Mm-hmm. So the East India Company, being the evil supervillains that they were, decided to manufacture the opium and allow it to be easily smuggled in China. That is dirty. And it's kind of blowing my mind that opium and tea are somehow connected in a way. This is all seriously dirty stuff. They actually set up right on the border between India and China, like the company set up on the border so that they could easily push oh. into... Yeah, it's... Super messed up. pushes, yeah. Yeah. So these events are in part what sparked the opium wars. I think for me what is so fascinating is that opium and opium dens, especially when you're reading through all this history, are something that have been really tied to 
the Chinese people into Chinatowns. Yeah, exactly. And when we actually take a minute to consider and question where that opium was coming from, we learn it came from the British who pushed it on the Chinese. Mm-hmm. So the first opium war was from 1839 to 1842. And about 10 years later, there was a second opium war where the French joined in. And then there was the Taiping Rebellion, a religious conflict that lasted 15 years and claimed an estimated 20 to 30 million lives. There were also multiple peasant uprisings during this time that claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. That is a lot of overlapping fighting. So China is a whole world of strife. And so, of course, people wanted to get out of Dodge at this time. Yeah, exactly. So the first real pull to the Americas came in 1848 when gold was found in the Sacramento Valley. Then in 1857, gold was found in the Fraser Valley and the rush was on. Chinese gold seekers came from San Francisco because some had already been there from the previous gold rush, and then they came direct from Hong Kong to Victoria. So what was it like when they first got here? Well, they were quickly subjected to racism. What? Yeah, I know. I know. I am shocked. (laughs) Racism. That is in, in Canada. Wow. Okay. Tell me more. Okay, let me let me tell you. This is a shocking re- I know, revelation. Right. Okay, so sometimes there there was segregation, and sometimes it was a self imposed mm. segregation for the sake of safety. Of course, that makes sense. Yeah. So this is when we really start to see the beginning of Chinatown in Victoria. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio Four, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. In 1858, much of Victoria had already been claimed in one way or another by groups of people. In reality, it had been the territory of many Indigenous people. Yeah, and now non-Indigenous people began to claim the land for themselves. Englishmen who were lawyers or doctors had settled into the hillsides of the city. The Hudson's Bay Company men who worked in trade settled on Humboldt Street, and Jewish merchants settled on Johnson Street. Any relation to you, Johnson? Do you own a street? I, I will never own not. anything ever. Well, <laughs> well, technically. I know, right? I mean, that's another episode. But mm-hmm. We can get into yeah. land ownership. Yeah, stay tuned. And, and stay tuned. Yeah. Upcoming. Okay, so yeah. At this time, in the late 1850s, white landlords would not rent, lease, or sell their lands to Chinese people unless they were on the fringes of town in undesirable areas. Mm-hmm. These places were called pig pens by the people who stayed in them because they were so cramped and prison-like. Sometimes in places like Vancouver, newly landed Chinese people were quarantined to these spaces. Wow. In Victoria, the Chinese set up on the north bank of the Johnson Street Ravine on the mud flats or tidal flats. Oh, that sounds like it would be 
damp and un, un- yeah. undesirable. Not really. not a not a good place to mm-hmm. to set up camp. No, but they had no choice. Mm-hmm. And the ravine acted as a natural barrier to the rest of the city, and there was room for Chinatown to expand northwards towards Cormorant Street. Shacks and tents were the first structures Chinese people set up. Initially, it was a stopping place for miners to rest, to shop for goods they needed for the journey to the gold fields. Many Chinatowns in BC were started in much the same way as in Victoria, with a single street which, when translated, meant Chinese street. By 1862, the population of Chinatown in Victoria would have been about 300 people. There were many temporary residents in the early days, as many people were heading off to seek gold or coming back from laboring work. Sometimes the population of the settlement would swell when a ship came in from Hong Kong and then decrease as people headed out for work. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. The area grew from being called Chinese Street to Chinese Port, and then finally to Chinatown. How did people feel about living in these emerging Chinatowns? Well, many liked being in their own communities with their own people with freedom to follow their own customs. And, of course, avoid some of the racism. Yes, that too. As I said earlier, many of the people who were living in these towns, these Chinatowns, were working away and they would come back and stop and rest and then head out again. Right. And one really heart-wrenching thing that I found when I was doing the research was that sometimes when these men were out working in the gold fields, they would be killed or harassed. Right. Uh, and so sometimes what they would do is they would stick to already previously mined claims right. and just try to find anything they could. Like leftovers. Yeah. yeah just to... Just to stay stay safe, really. Yeah. Once the gold rush was over, work really dried up. This was a time when people began fighting for jobs, and many Chinese men were willing to work longer hours for lower wages. And I can't imagine that this was well-received by all the white people. No, it was not. And things were only going to get worse. In 1871, British Columbia joined Confederation. One of the key reasons BC joined was the promise of a railway that would connect the country. Mm-hmm. Sea to shining sea. That's right? right. This would be a difficult undertaking because this new railway would have to go through the Rocky Mountains. Right. And we know that many Chinese people were employed to build it because they were they were paid less. Yeah, that's yeah. right. There were many people who actually fought to restrict Chinese men from working on the railroad. Organizations like Working Men's Protection Association, which would eventually go on to be the Anti-Chinese Association, racist. petitioned the government to prohibit the use of Chinese labor. Also racist. They wanted the project to go forward, but with strictly white labor. Oh, did they now? Prime Minister John A. Macdonald had this to say. If you wish to have the railway finished within any reasonable time, there must be no such step against Chinese labor. At present, it is simply a question of alternatives. Either you must have this labor, or you cannot have the railway. (laughs) When Chinese men began to work on the railway, they were not only underpaid, they were denied medical attention when they were sick, they were overcharged for supplies, and they suffered from malnutrition. Right, that reminds me of that Canadian Heritage Minute. All right, who wants to earn some danger pay? All you have to do is go down in the tunnel with the nitro and set the charge. Okay, okay, I, I do, I do very good, you see. Now pour it in the hole gently, understand? Any little bump in that stuff will blow. Damn it, that's the third one we lost this month. I lost many friends. 
They say there is one dead Chinese man for every mile of the track. That's what they say. Sad. Yeah, and it's terrible because if you've seen that Heritage Minute, you mm-hmm. know that, like, at the end of it, the the young Chinese worker he walks out. At he the walks end. out yeah. and he's fine. Mm-hmm. But in reality, that wasn't the case for many of these men. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them died and a lot of them were hastily buried and left covered with rocks and the work continued. Over 2,000 people died, according to some estimates. Because of Chinese labor on the railroad, it is said that Canada saved between three and five million dollars. Which is massive because even though that's a massive number now, think about it. Then. Then. That's Wow. After the railroad was completed, many Chinese people settled in B.C. And this is where we start to see some of the most profound racism happening. Right. So the need for Chinatowns was much more urgent. Yes. You want community around yes. you. In 1872, British Columbia passed an act to disenfranchise, which means to take the rights away, of Chinese people and indigenous people. And this is something that we're going to take a look at a little bit deeper in our next episode. Right. Just over a decade later, the Canadian government passed the Chinese Immigration Act, which meant a head tax of $50 would be charged to any Chinese person coming to the country. This was obviously put into place to deter them. But the conditions in China were still so bad that people could make more money here. Well, I was going to say it sounds like the opposite of an immigration act. It's Mm -hmm. like the anti-immigration act. Yes. In 1901, the tax was then doubled to $100, which was a huge amount of money. And then in 1903, it was raised again to $500, which would have been thousands and thousands of dollars in today's money. And if the Chinese people made it from Hong Kong to Victoria, where ships docked, they were then treated much like prisoners. They would be subjected to a medical exam, and then it would be determined if they got the right to pay their head tax. If they couldn't, they would have to wait for a friend or relation to pay. And you could go weeks and weeks without knowing if you would actually be allowed in Canada. Anti-Chinese violence was so common at this time that one BC newspaper said that it was hardly worth reporting. Oh, really? Yeah. Racists. Okay. Sorry. Um. That's the subtext for this episode. (laughs) That is the subtext. Just Leah whispering racist in your ear. Hashtag racism. Uh, But there was pushback from Canadians who wanted Chinese to assimilate. One city councillor in Victoria is quoted as saying the Chinese immigrants did not eat our grub, wear our boots, nor did they patronize local industries, arts or science. But the fact of the matter was that as the city progressed, Chinese people were not permitted to sit on the lower floor of the Victoria Opera House, swim in the city's crystal swimming pool, or enter certain stores during specific hours. A special permit was even required from the sheriff for intermarriage. Why does the sheriff get the say? I, I mean, don't know. Who, who, who was this sheriff? I have no idea. So essentially, this is segregation. Yeah. I mean, I didn't actually realize the restrictions were that intense in, in the respect that they were law, essentially, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's really similar to Jim Crow South. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. The Chinese Immigration Act was amended once again. This time, the change was even more extreme. The act would now prevent the entry of any Chinese persons to Canada. It was passed on July 1st, 1923, Dominion Day, which we now call Canada Day. Ooh, that's 
intense. I mean, the Chinese people refuse to celebrate Dominion Day, understandable, instead opting to call it Humiliation Day. This would eventually be called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Meet Harry Ho. He's 74. And here's Roy Ma, born in Edmonton, but... I've been living in British Columbia ever since I was a teenager. He's 78. These men have always called Canada home, even at a time when Canada called them aliens. At that time, British Columbia was a racist society. Socially, they were a pariah. That there were a restaurant called White Lunch, with a display on the window signs that all white help only. We don't hire any uh, Orientals. When I go to a theater, we have to sit in a certain place. Certain sections were roped off into a segregated section reserved exclusively for Chinese and Native Indians. In fact, racism against Chinese was so rampant, Harry remembers the time while he was at Strathcona School when his very name was denied him. My name is Harry. It's a given name by my teacher. First certificate name is Ho Fat Chung, the Chinese name. So why did they call you Harry? Well, it's given by the teacher. I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> Just my brother is called Charlie, my other brother is called Willie, and my sister is called Lily. It's given by the teacher. And the biggest wrong for Roy Ma and Harry Ho? They were Canadian, born and bred, but didn't have the right to vote because of special policies designed to make it very difficult for more Chinese to come to Canada. I live in Canada. I'm considered Canadian. But I don't get the right to vote. See? The act would be in place until 1947. That's too long. I know, and it was devastating to families. Many people who had come to Canada seeking a better life would be cut off from their families for years. Some of them wouldn't see their families ever again. Right. It was estimated that between 1923 and 1947, only 15 Chinese people were allowed to immigrate to Canada. Wow. At times like these, Chinatowns across Canada would be so important to find a connection to culture and community. But with a policy in place like the Exclusion Act, some of these communities completely disappeared. After World War I and II, attitudes around race and racism began to shift in some urban centers as some Canadians reflected on the genocide in Europe. The value of these cities within cities began to slowly change. And nowadays, gentrification, meaning the process of, you know, renovating and quote-unquote improving a district so that it conforms to a middle-class sensibility, is constantly threatening some of these beautiful historic buildings and spaces. And we can't talk about Victoria's Chinatown without talking about Dr. David Lay. In the 70s, he was appointed by the City of Victoria and the Chinese Benevolent Association to be the chairman of a rehabilitation program. This would see the oldest Chinatown in Canada be cared for in a way that it had never really been. Sidewalks were replaced, bilingual signs were put up, power lines and telephone lines were repaired, and the Gate of Harmonious Interest was erected to commemorate an important place or event. And this place? It's pretty important.
Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It's written and hosted by me, Phelan Johnson. And me, Leah Simone Bowen. And produced by Katie Jensen. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance is provided by John Weir, Kelsey Cueva, and the folks from the CBC Archives. Our digital producer is Fabiola Carletti. The senior producer of CBC Podcast is Tanya Springer. And the executive producer is RF Norani. Come hang out with us on our Facebook group. You can chat with us about this episode or check out other cool history-related posts and tell us what you think. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at Secret Life of CAD. If there's a story you want to hear in an episode or a piece of history you want to tell us about, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. If you like what you heard, or even if you didn't, please review us on iTunes. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. And remember, pass it on. Okay. Also, are you listening to other CBC podcast people? You should be on drugs. It's amazing. You listen to it all the time. Yeah, yeah, I do. I like it a lot. It's great. It's like pop culture history. It's kind of like ours, but specifically about drugs. If you like drugs. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.